0: Hello, everybody. My name's Sam. I'm glad to be with you this morning. I'm guest preaching. Uh, we'll be covering some interesting things today. If you have problems with that, my email is scott at element3.org. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Today, we're continuing our series on the cross, uh, specifically the different theories of atonement, that idea of what people believe about Jesus' death. And at E3, we all feel that it's important For you to understand why we believe what we believe. And the only way to do that is to lay out these various beliefs and show you how those pieces fit together like a puzzle. Puzzles. Do y'all like puzzles? My wife, Amber, likes puzzles. She has no idea this picture is in this today. She'll uh, spread puzzle pieces all over our kitchen table and work on a puzzle for days, sometimes weeks. She always asks me to join in. I politely decline on that fun uh, to do anything else uh, to, uh, to not have to do the puzzle. Uh, Mark comes to the rescue. Mark will jump in there and help out sometimes, but other than that, poor Amber is completely on her own with her puzzle situation. If you like puzzles, find my wife. You may be able to start a little uh, support group for puzzle lovers who are married to people who don't like puzzles, and uh, we'll see how that goes. So Think of a puzzle where the end result is the face of God or the image of God, and each puzzle piece has a word on it, a word like creation or a cross like today or mercy or justice, love, grace, church, any of those words on each of these. And when we put them all together, you see the image of God. And until we discover the meanings of those words on each of those puzzle pieces, we can't truly see the picture of God that he's created for us to see about who about who he is. So that's why we're doing this series on the cross and those different theories about the cross. So let me say this up front. You can choose any of these four models. They're all orthodox. They all have biblical uh, support in the Bible. So by choosing one over the other, you're not doing anything bad. Or heck, you can choose more than one if you want. That's okay here. Our job is simply to educate you and allow the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and wisdom to you about that, okay? Okay. Okay. All right. So one more thing we need to talk about before we get into a little history lesson this morning. We need to talk about the word theology. Have y'all ever heard that word? People throw that word around, but we really don't know what it means. It just simply means the study of God. It's more of an academic or an abstract side of Christianity. I want you to understand this. When we talk about theories of the cross, we're moving into the realm of theology, Okay, that's different than kind of a biblical, practical understanding a lot of times about the way we live out our faith. And so you need to understand that because although theology is good and it's helpful, understanding theological models about the cross does not make you a good Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian at all. Believing in Jesus Christ makes you a Christian. So as we talk about these things, and if this series bores the pants off of you, you will not be the first theology student to fall asleep in class. I promise you that as we go through this, okay? But if exploring these cross models helps you get a better understanding of why you believe what you believe, so you can kind of stake a claim in your faith as to which one resonates with you the most, then that's, that's good. That's what we want. Okay, on to our history lesson. Everybody okay with theology class so far? Okay. So on to our history lesson. So four basic models of the cross. There's like 10 or 12 if you want to get all of them. But we're just going to do four. Four main ones, okay? Like wheels on a car, right? Four basic models. In other words, four basic theories about how Jesus being crucified on the cross saved humanity. How that works. Once again, all of them have biblical support. Some famous people uh, really love them. Other famous people really hate certain models. You've got people from all over the place believing different things. And all of them have been around since the early church in some form or fashion. And those four models are victory or ransom, satisfaction, substitution, and moral influence. Now, we've already done one last week. Mike talked about victory-ransom model last week. And the ransom model's been around since the early Fathers of uh, the church. Irenaeus is the name of a church father who really talked this up around the second century. And it's gone from there and, and explored different avenues from there. And at the core of that idea is that in the fall of humanity, Satan gained power over us. And we needed to be won back. We needed to be ransomed back from Satan in the sacrifice of jesus that there was a cosmic war going on and at the at the core of that cosmic war is the cross and that's where victory came from where we were ransomed back and victory happened now one of the interesting things about the way people interpret this they think that possibly satan was tricked into helping to kill jesus only to find out that in killing jesus that was the missing piece to save humanity it's like our curse is foiled again it's like you know you know, like a, like a, I don't know, whatever, like a cartoon uh, or something you wanted to watch when you're growing up. Um, so that Satan gained, uh, so that um, Satan was tricked into killing Jesus, knowing that that death would ransom humanity. And there's also the irony in this one that, that Mike talked about, that the seeming violent defeat of a so-called king was actually the final cosmic defeat of evil and a show of nonviolence for the future. Uh, It's the irony is there. It's pretty cool. And from this view, people will look at verses like Mark 10, 45, where it says, The Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. Gave his life for a ransom. Pretty pretty straightforward, right? It's right there. So that's the first one that Mike talked about last week. That was a great sermon. Second one is the satisfaction theory. Satisfaction theory was thought up by a guy named Anselm of Canterbury, he was from Canterbury, uh, and uh, he was a Catholic bishop around 1050 A.D., and so this one's a little bit later, but it, some of the ideas had already started percolating in theological circles. So, this is right in the middle of the Middle Ages, and so you had this feudal system. You had lords and nobles, and then you had subjects running the land and, you know, things like this, right? So, he, took, he looked at the cross through that lens, through that lens of a feudal system and nobilities and, and lords, and Anselm saw that God's honor, in us sinning, saw him as a medieval lord or a noble had been trampled by his subjects, and God had been dishonored. So the cross was a way to satisfy that penalty to make God honorable again by crucifying Jesus. Does that make sense? So God's dishonored; he's the feudal lord. That kind of an idea, and. And the cross restores honor to God, and it goes from there. So, y'all are doing good. Uh, just I, In theology class, I used to tap my leg to make sure I was staying awake, okay? So, if you need to do that, employ that tactic, you can. Next up, so that's satisfaction. Next up is the substitution theory, or what I would call the legal theory. There's some different ideas about what the name is. But the gist of it is this. When someone breaks the law, they must pay for their crime. In this case, Sin. Restitution must be made. But rather than require payment from us, God sends Jesus to be that payment, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, right? You've heard that before? That idea. So if that sounds like what you heard in Sunday school growing up, it probably was because substitution theory is what the Protestant movement birthed as part of what they did. And we're in a Protestant church today, and that's probably similar to what you may have heard in that Southern Baptist church you grew up in if you grew up in church in the South, right? That idea. So that idea was birthed out of the writings of Luther and John Calvin and and the Calvinist movement that came after that. And it's similar to Anselm's idea of using feudal ideas, but instead they took the ideas of a Roman legal system. So they were part of Uh, the Renaissance movement, and the Renaissance brought back those legal ideas from Greek and Roman times, put them firmly in our culture, and then from that culture, they said, okay, well, this is a legal understanding of the cross. Someone sinned, there's a crime, someone's got to pay for that crime. Instead of us, God uses Jesus to pay for that crime. That's how that works. So, Scott is going to be talking, luckily not me, Uh, about satisfaction, or Mike, (laughs) about satisfaction theory and substitution theory, because those are booger bears to get through. Um, And uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, So he'll be doing that. So, all right, history lesson over. Everybody good? Got your history lesson. Okay. Hopefully that's interesting to you. Uh, First time I heard that, I was like, oh, there are all these different ways to look at the cross. I had no idea. And then I was like, People read the Bible, and they think things different than me. You know, it was like, blows my mind. People can get different ideas out of the same verses uh, that I can. And so that's uh, that's kind of what I loved about that. You walk away from a completely different interpretation. So today, we're going to be covering the one that's left, that is quite different than the other three, and it's called the moral theory, the moral theory. Now, some people call it the moral example theory or the moral influence theory, but here's the story of the moral example theory. We'll head back to Anselm of Canterbury, right? Medieval guy who came up with the satisfaction theory, right? So he published that. A French professor named Peter Abelard voiced some concerns about that. He was a philosophy professor. He was steeped in rhetoric and, and science, logic, things like that. And he also had, did theology on the side. So Peter Abelard really did not like either the ransom theory or the satisfaction theory. So with the ransom theory, he said, look, you're requiring God to be subject to Satan's demands, right? God, Satan's pulling the strings. You got to win humanity back. He's like, I don't like that at all. If Satan has power over humanity, and that God is supposed to be all-powerful, couldn't God break that? And the answer is no. In that theory, until that sacrifice is made, then humanity is Satan's captive. And he says, that's not cool. That means God's not all-powerful. I believe in an all-powerful God. I'm not going with that one. That's what he says. So how can God be all-powerful and be at Satan's mercy at the same time? So Peter Abelard thought that that version made God a wimp. He said God has to deal with things outside of himself. He's not all powerful. So that's what he said. But and some satisfactory theory, that that guy, satisfaction theory, he he hated that one. I mean, big time. He was, you know, ransom theory, satisfaction theory. He really, really upset him. Essentially, Abelard said, Look, you fine, you've got your satisfaction and restored honor, Anselm, but what about the love, man? There's no love. You got this transaction where you've got somebody who's now happy that they're they're being honored again. He hated the idea. Of a ticked-off God whose honor had been insulted, and needed somebody to be sacrificed to appease him, like God's in the corner, okay, until you all make this right, or not doing anything. Not that idea, right? Making God in the image of a medieval manor lord. He said it's completely unacceptable. Uh, God is not a medieval manor lord, and those guys don't do things right. They, you know that's, that's that's not something we're going to be cool with. So Peter thought this version made God look like a pretentious, thin-skinned little jerk. He really did. Basically, he said what Cher said to Ty in that movie Clueless. Y'all know that classic Clueless? He basically said to Anselm, he said, look, God, that idea of God is way harsh, way harsh Ty. I don't know if y'all have seen that movie. It's a good quote. There's like four of y'all that know that movie. Okay, fine. All right, there they are. There's the four. Okay, so what did Abelard come up with instead of those two? He came up with the moral example Theory, the moral example theory. And this states that Jesus did not die to complete some type of transaction, whether it be a ransom or whether it be to uh, to please an insulted God. Peter said, God isn't actually insulted. He's not angry. He's not offended. He's not harsh. He's not violent. God is love. And any interpretation of the cross has to start with God being love. And then you go from there. In moral theory, Jesus's death is a demonstration of God's love for us, not an appeasement of wrath. Let me say that again. In moral theory, Jesus's death is, let me add this, a voluntary demonstration of love, not a forced appeasement of wrath. In other theories, something is broken. Something outside of God that requires God to adjust or to compensate for whatever this cosmic problem may be. Abelard said, that's not necessary. It's not not needed. Humans are the one who are broken, not God. Humans are the one that are broken. We disconnected ourselves from God and decided not to trust him. And the cross was a way, it's the way that God chose to show us that he wants relationship restored with us more than anything. When it comes to salvation, God is not the problem. He does not need to be talked into saving us through someone's death, most of all, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 says that God was in Christ. God is in Christ, not separated, reconciling the world to himself humans were not reconciling themselves to God and God did not split himself into part where the cosmic version of him in the sky was killing the human part of him on the cross to satisfy some violent vendetta. Now, that's different than what you heard in Sunday school growing up, isn't it? This is one of the, the, one of the models that people believe today. And at the core of moral theory is the idea that there does not need to be some cosmic transaction for God to love and be in relationship with us. Who hid in the garden? Was it God or was it us? It's us. We're the broken ones. We, not God, are the ones affected by sin. We are the ones that have trouble believing that God really loves us. So what did God do? He comes to us, and in the ultimate example of self-sacrifice... God in Jesus Christ dies, and his death was and is to this day meant to change our perception of God. The Bible is filled with story after story of us radically misunderstanding how much God loves us. The Bible is full of that. So the ultimate act of clarifying that he does is that God did something that we could not misunderstand. He self-sacrificed of his own volition on his own, not because someone demanded it or outside sources demanded it, but because he chose to do it. Romans 5 talks about this. It says, it isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone might dare die for a good person, but God demonstrates his love to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Die for a righteous person or someone might die for a good person. If someone runs into a a building that's on fire and saves someone else and dies in the process of saving that person, what do we call that person? A hero. God is a hero in Jesus Christ. So Abelard says God dies to impact us, not him. God knows what's up. He knows we're the ones that are confused. The Old Testament prophets begged us for centuries to come back to God, that our view of God was misaligned, that our thoughts about God became skewed after the fall. That's because we were sinful. And because we were sinful, we assumed that God was evil like us because we're petty. Because we're violent, because we're selfish, we assume that God must be ticked off, that his honor has been insulted. Right? So Christ's death shows us the opposite of that. He's like, not only am I, am I not mad at you, I'll bleed out for you. In a lavish example, and the cross makes us go, oh, 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 wow. Okay, we were clueless. God is love. We want to be appeased, not God. We need violence to show that we're in charge, not God. We need someone to tell us we're important, not God. God doesn't need us to tell him that, we're, uh, in, that he's important. God, God knows he's important, <laughs> right? So why would, we sa- why would he sacrifice somebody to convince us of what he already knows who he is, right? That makes sense? So moral theory urges us to see the horror of violence in the crucifixion as a result of sin, not something that God condones, but it is an example of what humans are capable of doing in their sinful state. Horror in the crucifixion is a result of sin, it's not a tool to extract violence. God isn't violent. Who is? We are. So what did Abelard get for putting forward this beautiful version of uh, the cross? He got a church tribunal, and he got excommunicated. (laughs) That's what he did. (laughs) He got kicked to the curb, okay? It didn't help that old Pete was having this torrid love affair with a lady named Heloise, um, which he wrote a lot of letters to. Um, And he had an affair with her. Ultimately, it ended in her pregnancy, and the couple got married in secret. It was scandalous. So this was all going on at the same time. It's not the best time to put forward a theory on the cross when you're in the middle of a torrid affair. So the scandal was so rough that Heloise's uncle actually hired a bunch of guys to break into Abelard's house to kill him in his sleep, in the middle of all of this stuff going on. So, you know, there's a little bit of confusion about why Abelard may maybe uh, uh, looked at a little, a little askance these days because of that. Um, and that's all interesting trivia, but I tell you that because it's important for you to understand what was in his mind when he developed moral theory. Abelard was in the throes of romance for the first time in his life after being an austere academic steeped in science, logic, and, uh, and studies. And then all of a sudden, this girl shows up. He understands love. And then that began to interpret how he viewed the Bible. It was the revelation that he, Abelard, would do anything for Heloise that he discovered that God would do anything for us. He's like, oh, okay. This doesn't fit with my science and my logic, but I like where this is going. That's how that came about. So all we have to do is shift our perspective from God as this spiritual policeman, this stern parent to a true romantic who is swept off his feet by us and will do whatever it takes to get our attention. How did he get our attention? tried a lot of different ways, but in the end, ultimately, he died for us in a hero's uh, mission. That's what he did. So lots of preachers and theologians have embraced this model over the years, okay? Friedrich Sleermacher, you may may not have heard of that dude. He was a German theologian, but he's the father of uh, modern Protestantism. So a lot of what you see today came from old Fred. I call him Fred because Friedrich's a long word father of modern Protestantism. So he believed this. And a lot of other German academics believed this with the horrors of war. And seeing the violence that their nation had wrought in World War II, a slew of them came on board and said, no, we are going towards a nonviolent understanding of the atonement, that idea. Horace Bushnell, I don't know if you've ever heard of that guy. He's a well-known Unitarian preacher, Uh, German thinker and philosopher Immanuel Kant. He believed that. So It also found a lot of support post-enlightenment among folks that you would know, all kinds of folks like Thomas Jefferson, um, even down to pacifist groups like Anabaptists or the United Brethren. So pacifists have chosen this nonviolent atonement model for years now. And modern monastics like Richard Rohr, if you've heard of him, also embrace this nonviolent moral influence atonement model. So where's the rub with these two? You know, all of these have, none of these systems are perfect. And that's part of the problem is that they're systems. We're talking about theology, right? Um, so what's the rub? What's the problem? Well, there's, there's, there's a problem with the model itself, and then there's a problem with our response to the model. The first thing, the problem with the model itself is that there's really no how, okay? All the other theories have a how. How did the cross work? Ransom theory, right? You're buying back ownership of humanity through the cross, right? Satisfaction was a how. You're restoring God's honor that had been trampled by sin. Substitution has a how. God's wrath towards Jesus pays the penalty of our sin, right? Moral, there's not a how. There's no how. Well, how did it happen? There must be a how. There's no how in this one. The event itself is the how. And the impact, the influence of the event itself of having someone die for you, that's the how. But as far as a transaction, some eternal cosmic transaction, there's there's not a how. Just an act of loving sacrifice that hopefully draws you to him. And that's where free will comes in. We have to respond. Okay? So the second problem is with us. We have not changed, I don't know if you know this, we have not changed very much over the last 2,000 years since Jesus died. <laughs> We're still petty and violent and warring and, 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 and sinful in a lot of ways and selfish. And so people say, well, this, this theory expects people to change and do better. And it does. It expects people to respond appropriately. But we still sin, we still fight, we still kill, and we blame God for creating a world that fights and kills Rather than looking in the mirror, which is what this model makes us do. But the other thing is, we haven't changed that much regardless of which model you choose. We're still warring and selfish and, and full of sin, regardless of which one of those choose which model we choose. And that at least is one of the good parts of this model. This model puts the responsibility back on us. Who died as the hero to save us? in an act of, dare we say, romance, an act of emotion, an act that creates influence and intuitive draw to the king of the universe. Jesus did. What do we do? Our job is to respond. Can God make us respond? No, he can't. He's not up there doing this with Master of Puppets, great Metallica song for you. I got it in there. Um, so, right, that's, that's part of the issue. So, we have to choose to respond in the middle of that. Um, I'll quote Wesley. I wasn't going to do this. I'm going off script, sorry. Um, Wesley talked about responsible grace, responsibility. And he said if you take the word responsibility, you break it out. What is it? Response and ability. The ability to respond to something done on your behalf that requires a reaction. That's what the death of Jesus is. It's the event that causes us to move towards something greater than who we are through the example and the influence of what God has done in Jesus. So it puts the responsibility back on us, how? Three ways, to recognize the love of God in the death of Jesus. To embrace that love so it can transform us. And then three, to become agents of that same loving grace we see in him all the people around us. That's pretty practical when it gets down to it. So maybe we don't need some cosmic transaction to occur to save us. Maybe what we need to do is turn our understanding and soak up the reality of who God is, allow that to fill us, and then work out that salvation in the community around us. Maybe that's what we need to do. Like Horace Bushnell said, he said, love is a, simple, is a principle, essentially vicarious in its own nature. That's kind of a, an odd phrase, but that's basically fancy 19th century theology speak for love is enough. Well, love is enough. Love has always been enough. It doesn't need more. You don't have to complicate it. You have to add stuff to the recipes, a dash of this, a dash of that. You don't have to do that. So there's freedom inside this model to embrace not knowing exactly how God does what he does. Do you know why? Because you're never going to understand how God does what he does because we're not God, right? It's just not going to happen. So there's freedom inside of this to embrace the love, accept the reality of a loving God, and then just let that begin to transform you over time rather than having to have a mechanistic, systematic understanding of God worked out for you then to be able to move forward. Maybe it's exactly what the moral theory says, a beautiful God doing whatever it takes for us to understand how much he loves us. Maybe that's that's all there is to it. Maybe that's the starting point and the ending point. You know, when you... The other part of this is rather than a transaction that may have occurred some time ago, this one invites you in the present to soak yourself in the reality of this model every day. And as you renew your mind every day, you become more like the reality of the self-sacrificial love you see on the cross. Rather than say, yeah, that was done back then and now I'm doing something else. Every day, we drop into an understanding of the love of God in the cross and the power of God in the resurrection. Maybe when Jesus said, it is finished, it wasn't because he had tinkered with the world cosmic system and created something. Okay, we're good now. Maybe he said, it is finished because what he meant was, that's it. That's it. That's the most outrageous thing I can do to help people understand how much I love them. Maybe God coming as man and bleeding out on a cross is enough. Maybe that's enough. And as you revisit that every day, maybe that love is enough to transform your life. That's what the moral model says, moral theory model says. Maybe that love is enough. Maybe there doesn't need to be anything else. Maybe that simple truth is the transforming aspect of the Christian walk. Amen? Amen.